0: I invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Acts as we're looking at the historical founding, the turning of the corner from the Old Testament times to the new, from the Old Covenant to the new, and now we're seeing Christ and his finished work in the Gospels and beyond that we see him ascend to the Father and we see the new church age as it's referred to, an age which we continue to live in to this day the planting of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. And we've been following along the Apostle Paul in this latter half of the book of Acts as he's taken the main stage from Peter and John. And we've been looking at chapter 25. Last week we looked at uh, Paul's appeal to Caesar. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. Felix is gone. He's been deposed. He had been a governor for quite some time. Uh, He had his problems, as we saw. He was greedy. He thought that maybe he could uh, extort some money, sort of tacitly, from Paul. Thought that he could curry favor with the Jews by keeping him locked up for two years. But he was a wicked governor, and he's replaced now with something of a new, fresh face in, in Governor Festus. So Governor Festus shows up on the spot, he's new, he does his due diligence, he goes to Caesarea, the, their capital in the province of Judea, where all of the Roman soldiers are, are have their headquarters there, and he's gone up to Jerusalem to meet with the Sanhedrin, the powers that be among the Jews at the time, so that he could sort of get his feet wet with this new governorship. So he's new. And so we take that into account when we see the things that are honestly frustrations for his, for him, rather. The frustrations, he's, he's marveling because this man has been kept in prison for two years. And now I show up and I'm handed this case. I've had this man Paul come before me. And quite frankly, I can't find any charges. But he appealed to Caesar. I gave him the option to go to Jerusalem to face the charges there from the Sanhedrin. And he chose instead, according to his Roman citizenship, which they all had the right to do, those that were being adjudicated, to stand before Caesar to be heard. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Festus says, you have appealed to Caesar. Caesar to Caesar. You will go. And now we see someone else show up. And this is an interesting character because we're gone from the two governors, Roman governors, to the provincial, the provincial governors at the time, to someone who referred to as King Agrippa. This is King Agrippa II He is part of the Herodian dynasty. In fact, he's the last of the Herods. He dies childless in around 100 AD, and that's the end of the Herodian dynasty. So he's not only going before Agrippa, he's going before the woman that he brought with him, and we'll look at who this woman is, and her name is Bernice. So here come Agrippa and Bernice to be cordial, introduce themselves to this new governor, and wish him well, I'm sure. But this is the fifth of Paul's defenses that he's about to make as we would move forward, especially into chapter 26. This is a long, if you saw the, the, uh, past, the passage that is Paul facing Agrippa and Bernice, it's long. It's long. We'll... Surely have to take it in preachable sections, because it goes from chapter 25 verse thirteen all the way to the end of chapter 26 and verse 32. Why Why? When Festus showed up, he had had truncated his defense, didn't he? Verse 8, saying simply, I am not guilty of, of violating the law of Moses. I'm not guilty of violating the temple. I'm not guilty of insurrection toward the Roman government. End of story. If you have witnesses, bring them on. Of course, they're not there. It was the Asian Jews. This is the Sanhedrin. They just want him dead. Because he's representing the message of Jesus Christ. He represents the truth. More specifically, he stands alone for the truth. And this is what he's up against. But why, when this King Agrippa and Bernice show up, does he see fit to give what has been decidedly his longest 28 verses, his most well-constructed apology or defense. Why? These why questions um, just continue to churn as I'm in my study preparing. I want to know why. I don't want to just speculate. I want, I want the text, I want the, the historical facts, as many as can be gleaned to help us understand and appreciate this event. Why does he go from one verse defense? He doesn't even give his testimony to Festus. It's like, I'm done with that. I gave it to Felix, the, the, gov- the governor before you. You're a new guy. I'm, and he just doesn't. But there's somebody who has the designation of being a king showing up. You need to know right up front this is a vassal king. This is a vassal king. A vassal king is a king of a smaller, much smaller area that answers to a greater king or emperor. And so he has some small little area that he is in in charge of, northeast of where he's being tried here in Caesarea, where Paul is being tried. So actually, Festus has more authority than King Agrippa. Interestingly. So, who is this king? This fifth of his defenses, of Paul's defense, has been uh, called his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is the defense of his life. Uh, we might say that it's his magnum opus, it's perfect. Because that's what we've received in God's word, which is what? Perfect. It's okay. And it in the originals, right? You'd be comfortable saying that. So we pay attention to this. We want to know. I want to know. I want to know as an exegete what, what makes this particular defense so well thought of, so well constructed, so effective, and why did he change when he went from the governors to this vassal king, Agrippa? In any case, the defense itself can be summarized with one undeniable truth, and that is the innocence of the Apostle Paul. Actually, all of his defenses have shown that. And to, and by the time we get through verse or chapter 25, rather, we'll see three important categories of people, three people groups. As we look at the demographic that's all assembled there to listen to him, we see the innocence of of the Apostle Paul that was proven in these three groups. First of all, the Roman government. And you can look at the textual support for that. The Roman government. He's innocent. Second, a Jewish king who actually overrode the Sanhedrin. You see, he had been given the power from Claudius, he's not. He's too young to be, Agrippa II is too young to actually have much more uh, authority as a king in Judea, but he's given him authority over the Sanhedrin, over the temple treasury. He can appoint or depose the high priests there. Interesting, isn't it? So this is someone who the high priest actually would answer to or the high priest better be careful how he conducts himself and adjudicates matters before this king because he has that kind of power and also the third group is this this entourage that's brought in with the king and bernice there's high-ranking military officials here tribunes plural the Chiliarch, that's a man set over a thousand soldiers, and there's multiple ones that are there. High-ranking officials in the public are there. Who orchestrated this great group of high-ranking people to be all assembled before the apostle? Uh, the apostle who? God. That's what strikes us, doesn't it? In retrospect, having the full copy of this record 2,000 years later, we understand God did that. Why? So that the innocence of the apostle is unequivocated. It's without question. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. He's innocent. And all of these people assembled there when the king shows up, know it. Really amazing. So when we look at our text... This morning in this first part, we're going to look at verses 13 through 27, which takes us to the end of 25, and then we will, when I return, we will finish up with that defense in chapter 26, verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Father, we need your help. I need your help. These are very important matters that you've brought before our hearing this morning. And we take that seriously. Lord, we want to understand all that you will allow us to understand. Indeed, that you call us to understand. That we would understand and appreciate the serious nature of of this redemptive enterprise that you've, by your grace and mercy, allowed us the privilege to be part of. Help us, Lord. Help us in our understanding as we look forward now in this narrative. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think it behooves us, at least it behooved me, To want to take a look at the Herodian dynasty. I want to understand this guy because things change for Paul here when this guy shows up. Something's different. Well, when you start to look at the Herodian dynasty itself, it's as old at this point in time as the Roman Empire. Indeed, it began even before it became an empire. It began when it was still a republic, but it's growing strong. It's growing strong in its influence all the way back to Julius Caesar. He's actually not the first emperor because they don't take that moniker until Octavian in 27 B.C., which is the official start of Rome as an empire. Okay, So it starts even before Herod the Great. You're familiar with his name. His father, Antipater II, had great influence with Julius Caesar. And so Antipater is the first one we want to look look at, but even what's important also is to look at even before this period of time, uh, around the 70s to 40s B.C., from the period of about 140 B.C. to 37 B.C., leading up into the Roman period, the Roman era of the Roman Empire and their power growing, the ones who ruled Israel were the Hasmoneans. It was the Hasmonean dynasty. They were Jews. It was a Jewish ruler at the time that sat on the throne. And so that comes into play. It becomes important when you start seeing how the relationship with the Jews is infected, or (laughs) Freudian slip, it actually was infected, was affected all the way down to our Agrippa In the text this morning. What did they think of these people? Well, we look at this Antipater. He was actually an Edomian. That means he's of uh, Edomite descent. What do you suppose the Jews thought of the Edomites? The Greeks and the Romans at the time, this is from uh, 140 on, as I said, regarded the Edomites, and they really referred to the whole area of Palestine as Idumea, because it was when, after the Roman conquest, the Edomites infiltrated the whole area. And so this particular man, this father of Herod the Great, was of Edomian descent. And so was his son then, obviously Herod the Great. So what do you suppose the Jews thought of this man? Now, these are Jews. Antipater, Herod the Great, all the way down to Agrippa II, and all of the relatives that come off of that family tree, they're, they're Jews. They're Jewish, but they're Roman patriots at the same time. They're allies of Rome. That's why they're allowed to be on the throne But you can imagine how that gets over with the Jews. So here you have Antipater who gives birth to Herod the Great. Herod the Great, of course, was from 440 B.C. to 4 B.C. The Roman Senate, by the advice of Antony, Mark Antony, and Octavian, who would become the first emperor, were the ones who appointed Herod the Great to be what they referred to as the king of the Jews. It was because he demonstrated himself so powerful to uh, quell oppressions when he was younger under his father, Antipater II. He he was quelling all of these uprisings that tried to resist the power of Rome as it's the, the hegemony, as it's moving now into Israel. And they would quell that. They represented Rome, but they were Jewish by family, by origin but in this case, Idumean. So Herod wanted to really uh, impress the Jews. He wants to make a good impression on them because he wants to do well in his role as this, as he's referred to, the king of the Jews. But this is the same Herod the Great that was something of a suspicious maniac with angry, murderous outbursts. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 2, what did Herod do there, Herod the Great? He killed all the children, the babies up to two years old, because the announcement, the Magi had come, and the announcement went out that the Messiah was born, the king of the Jews himself, the real king. So, excuse me, Herod the Great governed there for 33 years. He was the loyal friend and ally of Rome, so they were quite pleased with him. He did a lot of great things. He did a lot of construction. He built a lot of things. He built Caesarea, and that's after the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and he also built the Antonia Fortress, named after uh, Mark Antony, the Antonia Fortress. He built himself a big palace. So he was doing a lot of big and amazing things. But no matter what he did for the Jews to try to win their favor, they could never forgive him for one thing. And that is because he was of Idumean descent, he systematically killed all the Hasmonean family that remained. He killed them all. But there were some that remained. One was named Mariamne. Mariamne I was of Hasmonean descent. And he knew the Jews were furious with him for killing the whole Hasmonean family, which they favored. So he married her. He married Mariamne I. And he had eventually five wives, and he killed not only the whole Hasmonean family, but actually by the time you get to 29 BC, um, he kills her too. But not before she gives him two sons. One of those sons is Aristobulus. Aristobulus is, we're following the line down to our Agrippa today. Okay? So Aristobulus was one of two sons from Mariamne the I. The sons were brought up in Rome. They were very Roman. But these are Jews by by descent, by religion. So they're part of the Herodian uh, dynasty, and the Hasmonean descent made them more acceptable in the eyes of the Jews. So since our Agrippa II comes from that line, he is, uh, Aristobulus was his grandfather, okay? So we see that There's other brothers to Aristobulus because Herod the Great had five different wives. There's other younger brothers, half-brothers that would be then from different wives that Herod had. And they got jealous because Herod had given the heir to the dynasty to the two sons from Mariamne so that the Jews would be pleased. And he had one older brother, Antipater. And his older brother, Uh, and the other brothers were uh, put to death as well. So he's killing people left and right. So um, do a character study as we move down through this family tree. Uh, Shocking things going on, and we haven't even got to what I think is even the most shocking thing about this particular family. So... One of the sons of Aristobulus then was Agrippa I. Now, this is the father of the Agrippa we have showing up in Caesarea here in our text. Agrippa I, 41 to 44 AD. He was also brought up in Rome. And he was a favorite, just like Aristobulus was his father, a favorite of Emperor Claudius. As one writer said, he courted the goodwill of his Jewish subject, who looked on him as a descent of the Hasmoneans. Through his grandmother Maryamne, and approved of him accordingly. So that's the point. But some of you may recognize who this particular Herod is. This Herod Agrippa is the one who killed John's brother James in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Herod the king, that's our Agrippa the first, our Agrippa in our text, the second's father, Herod the king laid hands on violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Oh, you like that? Oh, okay, well, I'll go after some of the other ones then. You'll like me even more? This is how they thought. Murder wasn't a problem for them. So... We look at verse, or chapter 12, verse 21 to 23. This is the end of the chapter. So bracketed in there is he goes out and arrests Peter. You know that story from when we went through it. Peter is released by the angel and so on. So at the end, we see the death of Herod Agrippa I. Verse 21 of Acts 12. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Even Josephus, the well-known Jewish historian at the time, records this event. So it's even in uh, extra-biblical historical records that this took place. So Herod died at age 54 in 44 AD. Painful death, of course. But what's striking is the level of arrogance that we see now that's coming down through this particular family line. So what do we have? Let's start looking. Let's start, let's start looking at a profile here. We've got the, the murderous insanely suspicious Herod the Great. And now we have uh, his grandson Agrippa who is killing the apostles and also locking them up and who is so arrogant he's struck dead on the spot. That must be some high level of arrogance. This is rife in the family. I mean, this is a family trait. He had... His son Herod Agrippa II and two daughters. The two daughters are Bernice and a, another daughter that who you're familiar with and that's Drusilla. You remember Drusilla was married to Felix. And we went through her whole story. So Bernice and Drusilla if you haven't put this together yet are Agrippa's sisters. So Herodias is one of his daughters. You remember Herodias from Acts, or from Matthew chapter 14, where John the Baptist is killed. So he's the da- she's the daughter of Aristobulus and sister to Herod Agrippa I. She married two of her uncles. First Herod Philip, that's mentioned in Matthew 14, verse 3. Then Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, also mentioned the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded at the behest of Herodias when Salome did her famous dance. So incest is what we're seeing here. Another half-brother to Aristobulus named Philip married Herodias's daughter, Salome, his great-niece. Nice family dysfunctional doesn't quite cover it, does it? This is a debauched family. Agrippa II, our Agrippa, we come down to him now. He received his title, of course, from the Emperor Claudius, as I mentioned. The... um, one of the commentators said that the Talmud reports that his mother took profound interest in the Jewish religion. And some of this interest may have rubbed off on him. Agrippa II, in fact, was looked upon by Rome as an authority on the Jewish religion. Now, why is that important to our text, do you suppose? Maybe we're getting a handle on his motive, not just to say hello to the new governor, Festus. But this is the expert on Judaism. Could it be possible that he is coming because he's intrigued? Just like the Herod before him was intrigued with Jesus when Pilate sent him over to that Herod. Intrigued because these men are Jews. And so in this case, the, one, the man that's locked up, the Apostle Paul... it has got an issue that Festus can't quite understand. It's incomprehensible to him. He's looking for charges, civil charges. Give me some sedition. Give me some insurrection, something. You don't have anything. This is a man, he explains to Agrippa, that's coming up, that believes in this Jesus, who he says died and is alive again. And you can almost see him shrug his shoulders. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? He's a polytheist. He believes in multiple gods. He's a Roman. He's a Roman official. But God has a titular king, a vassal king, show up with intrigue, just like he did with Jesus. Watch what happens as we go further here. So his mother really, really was deeply interested in Judaism. So we can imagine, understood the scriptures well, the Talmud itself reporting of this interest. So Bernice. Bernice was born uh, a year later, after Agrippa II, actually, in 28 A.D., before she started cavorting with her brother, Agrippa, she had been married to her uncle, Herod of Calus. Uh, by the way, she was 13 when she was married to him. When he died in AD 48, she went to live with her brother, Agrippa II, engaging, as has been reported, in an incestuous relationship with him. And she she would go from one person to the next, she, went, she even had a, a brief tryst with uh, Titus from the Vespasian family. And Titus, before he was emperor, he's the conqueror who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. There was so much bad of a bad vibe with this Bernice that he finally dumped her, and when he got rid of her, she went right back to Agrippa, her brother. So she travels with him. I mean, the soap operas can't come up with this stuff. The more you dig, the more muck you find. So you're stuck with the question, why? Because every bit of the scriptures are purposeful to us. I want to know why. I want to know as much as I can about this man. And the more you dig into his life, the more you begin to develop your own intrigue. She had married, Bernice had married a, uh, a Cilician king. She deserted him, returned to her brother. As I said, went to Titus, abandoned. He abandoned her. She went back to... So the Herodian line is characterized by a number of things that I started to enumerate. I thought, okay, let's get the picture on this final Herod, this, this last of the dynasty, this man who travels around with, and lives with his sister In this line we see unrestrained arrogance, we saw that with the Herod that is smote at the end of Acts chapter 12. We see wild, insane suspicions by Herod the Great resulting in murderous outbursts, killing the entire Hasmonean family extant at the time, including the one that he married, Mariamne I. In 29 BC she was dead. It's like he can't kill enough. Aristobulus's half-brothers were jealous of him, so they started plotting against him because he had been given the dynasty or, or the heirship from his father, Herod the Great. Herod found out about it, and he killed them. These are his sons. And eventually killing the oldest son, Antipater, in 7 B.C. So not only murderous outbursts, but murderous, murdering your own children is in this line. Insatiable lusts for power. That's what we're looking at here. Continually pandering to the Jews. Seeking whatever, by whatever means, are expedient to them to curry favor from them. Because their job, their principal job is to keep the peace there. Interesting. Given this is quite a violent family, yeah, to say the least. And the sexual perversion is of the most heinous sort. Verse 14, let's pick up the text. So, as Agrippa and Bernice stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. As I said, as our text opens, we see Festus stuck with quite a quandary. He's like, what did I inherit here? I don't even know how to deal with this issue. There are no charges to grab hold of. He, Paul, has appealed to Caesar. I've got to send him, but I have to get, they had to submit a report that had included the charges. What are the charges? And they, this is quite a quantity, to say the least. Paul appeals to Caesar. He doesn't know what to do. So, given the background, especially the level of knowledge and the Jewish background, of this Herodian succession of vassal kings. How do you think Festus felt when he showed up? Thank you to whichever God he might have been praying to. Maybe he can figure this out. He's Jewish. And that's why he makes this big appeal to him now. It's like, I need help understanding what this is all about. So he lays out his story to him. He's got a king of the Jews before him now. Verse 16, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. I'm... This is, this is our interpretation. I am doing my job. He wants the king to understand. I'm, I'm by the book. I'm the new guy. He was actually a pretty good governor. He was short-lived. Two years later, he was dead. But he's, this is what we're supposed to do. Verse 18, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed important. Important language there. What do you suppose he means by that? What charges do you suppose Festus supposed? Give me some good old-fashioned sedition. Give me some insurrection, something. Even Claudius Lysias, the tribune that first brought him in custody, you remember? said, hey, aren't, aren't I thought you were the Egyptian, this, this, this insurrectionist for real that had 4,000 that raised up to overtake the Roman government. Now here's some, this is a legit charge. He escaped. He didn't get away. Actually, it was Governor Felix when he, who, who quelled that whole uprising, but the Egyptian got away. And so Lysias is thinking, are you the Egyptian? This is how they think. This is how they think. But So he's supposing something like this. It's like, but, but there's no charge. There's no, there's no charge even for when they came down and said, you know, it's sedition. He's, he's creating these riots. And remember, Paul just said, hey, bring my accusers. Where are they? Because it was the Asian Jews that accused him, remember? They didn't come down. Why do you suppose that is? But the Sanhedrin wanted it stopped. They thought they could get him with the 40 that took the vow to kill him. Didn't work, did it? Providentially, I love the, just the small and quiet means that the Lord demonstrates his greatest might with. He has Paul's nephew overhear the plan. Tells Paul, Paul's like, well, tell the centurion, I imagine Paul quite that composed and relaxed because that's been his attitude through all of this. He simply stands and delivers the truth. Amazing. Admirable, isn't it? So there's no sedition. Verse 19, that's what he had supposed. There there should be some kind of violation of our law. There isn't. Verse 19 Rather, they had, here's what, here's what they did have. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. What do you want me to do with that in this tribunal? What do I write to Caesar? Well, Here's the charge. So obviously, to Festus, this was not a, go- this was not a, a governmental issue. This was a, a theological issue. This was a philosophical issue. How do you adjudicate that according to your fixed laws of the Roman government? It's interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Verse 20, being at a loss, how to investigate these questions... I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. He just wanted him off of his hands because he did not know what to do with this. This was incomprehensible to him. He couldn't comprehend it. it's, It's pointless to have a Roman governor trying to solve this problem or come up with any kind of a report. He's... Essentially confessing his total inadequacy with what to do here. But now he's got the Jewish king. His kingship is somewhere just a little bit north of east of of Caesarea. Verse twenty-one. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So this is the first place the term emperor shows up. It's one of only two places in the entire scripture, in the entire New Testament, where it shows up here and in verse 23, we'll hear it again. What is this word? It's the term Augustus in Latin or Sebastian. In Greek, which means venerable or imperial. So now that they're getting more powerful, they're, they're giving these grander and more uh, uh, highly venerated titles. And so that's what that word means. So the first one, as I mentioned before, was given as an honorary title to Octavian. So they referred to Octavian as Caesar, Augustus, the emperor, Caesar. or uh, Yes, the emperor Caesar Augustus. But his real name is Octavian. And so that's the reason. So this word Caesar is uh, Caesar in the Greek. And it's just a name for a prominent family. That's why Julius Caesar took that moniker, that title. He was of a prominent family as uh, they're growing in their power in extent in the Roman Empire. But now we see something new and that's this word emperor. You can see how this stirred the Jews up because it was given to Roman emperors from Octavian forward and it meant literally one lifted above other mortals. So you see the worship coming. That's the point. Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said Festus, you will hear him. You can read the excitement in his language. You can almost hear it. He can't wait to get this fellow who's got the roman authority completely stumped he doesn't know what to do with it because it's a theological issue but guess what i understand the talent. i understand the torah i understand our scriptures he's thinking he's young he's got bernice with him He's got a whole entourage there with him that entered with him. This this idea of Agrippa's interest being stirred, I would like to hear the man myself. I would like Kai the making the I emphatic. I would like remember the arrogance. Remember, he's an up-and-comer, too. He's young, and he can't wait to hear this case. I want to hear this. He sees a desperate governor who actually has more authority than he does, and now he gets to show him, I can handle this for you. Do you see what's coming? Whenever the Lord allows us to get to the defense in twenty-six. He's up against the Apostle Paul. He's, moreover, he's up against the Lord's own witness. You can imagine what he's hoping for here. It's not exactly what happens in the abrupt way that the chapter ends in 26 with Agrippa standing and essentially saying, could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Caesar. I'm out. So the I is emphatic here. Verse 23, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Great pomp is fantasious. In the Greek, fantasias. What English word do we get from that? Fantasy. I think this is our human writer Luke having some fun. Wow. <laughs> Look at all this. It's fantasia on foot. You need to put your mind there. Because of what the Lord is orchestrating here now. Imagine such an entourage as i said military tribunes plural these are high it's like having a a group of uh, military generals coming into the room high ranking officials from the city great pomp it means an appearing a show of magnificence it goes beyond really his station in life, if you think about it. He's a young guy cavorting with his own sister, and he's got some little spot that he oversees, and the governor himself overrides him. It's a brilliant display, a splendor. This is an ostentatious display. Look, you know what it reminded me of? because while i'm doing this work in my study i was looking <laughs> i was looking out the window and some of you have got some turkeys that are showing up you know what the toms do so we've got a whole herd of turkeys walking across the yard and the toms stop and flush out their feathers and they flush out their side feathers and they're strutting they're right am i am i wrong they're strutting look at me That's King Agrippa. Look at me. It's like a peacock. Look at me. Look at me. It's a show. It's a pretentious, ornamental facade. It's fake. It has no substance in it. But it's a show. This, think about it. He puts on this display in the very same city that his father was killed in. So we've got tri- tribunes, the chiliarchios, And we've got this pretentious display of Roman pageantry going on. And of course it was deliberately intended to intimidate anybody who stood before them. They wanted to impress at the moment of their entry. They wanted to show who they were. It was to elicit reverence and awe. And then the text says, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. What a magnificent contrast. Be mindful of how he looked. Two years in house prison, in chains. We know what he went through as we followed him all through his three missionary journeys, being stoned, being locked up, pulled apart by stocks, beaten. What did he look like? So he shuffles in. All you hear are the sounds of the chains. Mm-hmm. This little bow legged, beaten, bedraggled man comes shuffling in. Scruffy, wear worn, disheveled. Let's simply say that truth does not need any kind of a show. Truth does not need. Ceremony, truth does not need embellishment truth does not need garnishment it would be a classic case of gilding a lily and so God glorifying himself by giving truth to this hobbled addled broken little man who's all alone save for his chains and perhaps an accompanying jailer. Verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man (laughs) about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, Shouting. He ought not to live any longer. Picture in your mind the contrast. You see before you this man, this broken, hobbling man. Oh, so dangerous, isn't he? Oh, so influential. No one with him. All alone. He stands. They're shouting. Kill him. Kill him. If it makes you mindful of someone else, I think it was intended to. Who inherited this mantle? They're both gone now. You and me we stand alone broken unsure of ourselves questioning ourselves who am I to speak truth and yet truth himself gave his truth to us you will be my what witnesses you must speak you must speak what We know the content, truth, because we love. Because we love. We love people enough not to withhold what they so desperately need to hear. That would be a sad case of selfishness, wouldn't it? Reputation-protecting approval-seeking, people-pleasing. Now, Paul, he has impressed us for the past whatever time in the three years we've been in Acts with his unwavering, uncompromising stand for the truth. There's no fear in this man, no fear of the feet of clay. Verse 25, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. What else can I do? But now he has a problem. What, 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 what do I write in the report? Help me, King Festus. Turns out to not be any help at all in that regard. Huh, he shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. He could have been set free. And there he says it in 26, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about Him. Therefore I have brought Him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, especially you. You know this religion well. He probably knows about the way, which is what what they called Christianity at the time. The way being Christ, the way, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the anointed one. You know about him. You know what this argument is. Especially King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. You see what I need here? I need something to put in this report. Verse 27, For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Key word in the verse. It seems unreasonable. When Paul worked with the governor before him, Governor Felix, what did he do with him? He reasoned with him. I find nothing, Festus is saying, reasonable about any of this. It doesn't make any sense at all. This unreasonable is a It's logos, which is to, to think upon something or reason something in the mind. With the A in front of it, it makes it a negative. There's no reason to this. Get me out of this situation. Paul before Festus with Felix is reasoning with him and he uses the threefold important categories. You'll recall, what did he reason with him about? Righteousness, self-control. Agrippa, self-control? There's an oxymoron. And the coming judgment. Judgment. How did Felix respond? It wasn't that long ago we went through that part of the story. He was alarmed. Why? Because he reasoned with him. You and I are charged to reason with people because these things that we believe we hold to as truths, if they are in fact true, these are the realities. Look at that over against the magnificent, ostentatious display of the king. His impressive entourage that he brings in with him. And of substance, there is none. Of substance of the charges by the Sanhedrin, there is none. This, he says himself, in this new governor trying to make the point, this I find unreasonable. There isn't a charge. There isn't a charge. How can I send him? It's without reason. It's illogical. It's, it's irrational. As we close, it reminded me of the the beautiful crimson plume on the top of the Roman's helmet. If you don't know what that looks like, you can look at the beautiful artwork of my wife as she painted that when I went through the various armor pieces of the Roman soldier. Why do you suppose... What good is that to defend against a sword? What, is that an offensive weapon or defensive? That plume... That crimson plume, what's it for? It's to impress, it's to intimidate. They look taller. They look gr- more grand. They more, look more impressive, more imposing as they would march together against an enemy with these plumes in the air. That's, that's King Agrippa and his entourage What did he need to bring all of them for? To intimidate, to impress. Why? Why is that necessary? Because there's no substance to the man. There's no truth in the man. All there is is debauchery in him. All there is is what he can manipulate. All there is with him is what his flesh desires. Same with Felix. Felix. So, when presented with reason, because it's actually, in fact, true to reason with someone and saying, of righteousness, you are incapable of self control, impossible. And yet, there is a coming judgment. We reason with the truth, but we do so like Paul, like Jesus often standing alone. If you yield to the desire to have a group with you, an entourage, you'll compromise somewhere. The truth often isolates. Often, often, you stand alone. Often, falsely accused. Often, Disliked or worse. But that's why we're here. We're not here for a great show. This king's display of grandeur was simply designed to impress Festus and intimidate Paul. A most indeed you can picture shuddering. He's walking in with these tribunes, these generals over thousands of Roman soldiers, the Roman government itself being the powerhouse, the world global powerhouse that it is. This is intimidating, not to Paul. How does he get there? Don't you want that? I do. you got to be ready for people not to like you. You take the care of souls seriously and speak the truth reasonably, you will be disenfranchised even from your own family members in many cases. They don't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it from Paul. But you see something here in this story as we finish? That is, Objective that I'm sure King Agrippa's used to, the whole family line that he comes through, they've enjoyed that intimidation factor throughout the entire dynasty nearly 150 years worth. It backfired. Because who stands out as most impressive here? <laughs> Was the show impressive? What was impressive here? Here is Satan marshalling all the corrupt forces that he can't possibly marshal together, not just King Agrippa and Bernice, but the tribunes, leading men in the city. He's got a whole entourage standing there. There's no grandeur on display When truth itself hung from the cross, his name was was Jesus Christ. What kind of a grand display was that? You see truth in its most raw form, its most graphic, its its most head-shaking, hideous, and yet, You see at the same time the sublime beauty in the bloody brokenness of the sacrifice of Christ. That conjures up a type of of beauty that glorifies God, His Son, broken and bleeding on the cross. Because it's truth. That's why. Because it's truth sometimes your words sound like, don't talk like that. Don't, don't be so biblical. You see? Smooth it over a little bit for me. Round off the edges, will you? How long are you going to be? Are you going to talk about this every time we get together? Because I don't like it. to stand at the foot of the cross and see the emaciated, bloodied, broken body of Jesus Christ. But that steals the show in Paul's case, doesn't it? Because he represents Christ in the moment that he stands for the truth. That, my friends, is our calling without compromise. No pretense there just the harsh reality of what it cost God to rescue a hell-bound humanity. Will you stand for him? Will you speak the truth in love when called upon to do so? That's the question. And eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you so generously give us I thank you Lord for not only the account of Jesus Christ our Savior and all that he endured but the ones that came after him Stephen Peter John James as he was martyred and now Paul you've given us many examples Lord And our call to be ready in season and out of season, to be faithful to our apologetic, to speak the truth, to reason with people before it's too late. Help us to do that, O Lord. Help us that you might be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.